You take analysis of boards, management, team ownership, and you see a very similar pattern. You see, for the most part, white males. Welcome back to Climate Champions. My name is Madior, I'm your host, and in this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Anne Pegarero, the Lang Chair in Sport Management at the University of Guelph, and Dr. Lindsay Darwin, an Assistant Professor of Sport Management at my school, SUNY Portland. In this episode, we get into issues facing women and girls in sport, and how fixing some of the gender issues may have some positive spillover effects for environmental management. So thank you both so much for joining the podcast to have this conversation about how promoting opportunities for women and girls in sport has synergies with promoting environmental well-being and um, sustainability more generally. Uh, I want to start at the beginning for both of you with how you got to where you are, what got you interested in sport initially, um, what's your background in this space, and, and how have you become one of the, both of you, the leading researchers in gender and sport. I'll start with you, Anne. Yeah, sure, start with the older person. I got a longer story to tell, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so, so my journey to sport and, and being interested in around gender, um, you know, it's been sort of an evolving one over time. And I think when I, I now where I am and I can reflect, so when I first wanted to sp play sport as a kid, my mom had no idea about sports, didn't know where to put me into them. I went and got myself onto a soccer team without her and just bought the forms home. And so I realized at that point, like, you know, when I reflect on it now, because she didn't have a sporting background, she didn't, wasn't interested in it. It was hard for me to get into it. Um, and I played on mixed teams. I played soccer on boys and girls teams. And I didn't really think about gender for a long time. And I can even tell you that I, I can... I was an MBA student in my MBA class. They brought in someone to talk about the glass ceiling, and I didn't believe it exists. I, I thought, ugh, I haven't had any problems. I haven't had any issues with being a woman and wanting to do what I want to do. I was 22 and fairly naive. So, um, you know, you fast forward several years and you put together uh, a history of being an athlete, um, a convoluted path to becoming a professor, not a direct one, but a different one. Um, and then I think maybe just the awakening and starting to understand what I started to experience myself in my own career around gender and then starting to look at at my sporting past. And I used to always think we I had equal opportunities to all the guys that played sports. And I realized that I it wasn't the same. You know, the budgets yeah. weren't the same, the travel wasn't the same, the exposure wasn't the same, but I didn't see it the same way when I was playing it. And so I think that sort of got me excited to to say what could I do to make a difference. Um, with what I do now. So it's, it's two-pronged for me. It's both the research side of things, but it's also bringing it into my classroom on a regular basis. And then, you know, hopefully the third prong would be working with industry to make change too. So it's a long story, but that's sort of how I got to where I am now. Brilliant. And so now you're at University of Guelph, just recently, the yeah. Lang Chair for Sport Management. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. So the first of the, of the Lang Chairs to be established and, uh, probably the only endowed research chair in sport management in Canada at this time. So, yeah, that was my next point is like, that's super rare to get that kind of endowment for sport research. And then you kind of got it again um, with a, a really brilliant uh, grant project with some colleagues in Toronto and Quebec, Laval. Yeah, Laval. So we uh, submitted a proposal to sport Canada, the national funding body who had put aside money to form um, a research group around gender equity in sport. Uh, we were the successful proposal, so they're giving us three years of funding, just about one one point six five million dollars for research 
um, and, you know, research with impact so that we can move it back into industry to sort of help move the Canadian sports system towards the goal of gender equity in sport by 2035. So it's a lofty goal and don't quite know how we're going to measure it, but our job is to sort of research behind it and hopefully, you know, take down the barriers um, and shine lights in areas that maybe people haven't thought around gender and sport. Really cool. So we'll dig into some of those areas that people may not have thought about later in the podcast. Lindsay, uh, your story, a little bit different, um, but similar in a sense. You both you both came up playing sports as athletes. Right. Yeah, I was going to say that. So not quite as long as, as Anne's uh, path there. <laughs> I am the younger, though, so this could always change in a couple of years. I'll add more to the story and to my path. But yeah, so I started off, I played sports. Um, you know, my mom was similar. I, I wouldn't say that she ever really understood much of what I was doing when I was participating, but she was very encouraging. And she and my father got me involved very early. I went to my first, you know, basketball clinic. I think I was five or six years old. So very, you know, participation wise, very, very early. But to, to Anne's point, you know, I started to realize, I think very quickly that there was this, and when you're younger, it's about what's fair, right? So I think I noticed pretty early on, like, there's something that's not fair. Like, we don't have as many fans at our games. We don't, you know, get as much. We don't, we don't have as much funding. Our uniforms are a little bit older. So, you know, as a, as a player, I think I started to realize that there was this lack of, of fairness, right? And then as you grow, you realize that that's a lack of equity, so as I was, I was actually a political science major in undergrad, I played basketball and lacrosse, and I was going to go into law because I thought that that's, you know, it's competitive. And that's what I was going to do, because that's what athletes do. They want to stay competitive. Um, and then quickly, I realized, like, no, I want to stay in sport in some way. And I didn't know what that was. So first, I thought coaching, then I thought administration. And when I got into the admin side, I realized it's, it's not, you know, it's not fair still the equity is lacking. And so where can I make the biggest difference? And is that in administration or is that research? And it really wasn't until I went to UMass that I realized it was so funny. I I get there and I didn't even realize before that point that you could get a PhD in sport management. (laughs) So once I realized that kind of the rest is history. And I said, I think this is where I can make the biggest impact. And uh, here I am. So you both alluded to a couple of big themes there. Obviously, fairness and equity is one. But this problem it kind of spans the gamut, like right from those three-year-olds tots soccer where they're lying in the grass and looking at the sky to professional levels like U.S. Women's National Team is having a really important conversation and challenging their pay right now in the courts. Um, so this fairness or lack thereof really kind of happens at every level of sport. How, ha- how have we gotten to that point, right? Like it's 2020. We have made significant strides towards reducing the pay gap in most industries. We're nowhere near actually finishing that. But why is sport such a glaring example of inequity at this point in time? I think if you look at at who runs sport, this is this is where it starts. Right. Um, If you look at the stuff that Richard Lapchick Mm -hmm. puts out and looks at the racial diversity scorecard, they recently CBC just put out a an analysis of two days ago of the Canadian sports system. And you take analysis of boards, management, uh, team ownership, and you see a very similar pattern. You see, for the most part, white males. And so, um, you know, what we what we know from research over time is that I am more likely to hire somebody who looks like me than somebody who looks different, right? We're very comfortable yeah. with sameness. And so I think that we perpetuate those patterns over and over again. As much as we have put lots of programs in around equity and fairness, when it comes right down to it, we still repeat the patterns that we're comfortable with. 
So that's why I think we're still here. Right. We default to that sameness. See, and I wonder, so what, so what's the solution then? Is the solution just put different bodies on those boards and start there? Is the solution that we have to train up more women and diverse people in our programs? We're all three sport management professors. Is that where like, at what level do we start with this? I was going to go off of what Anne was talking about in terms of leadership. And I study this a little bit. I'm trying to get into actually, Anne and I are working on a project together, looking at characteristics of successful leadership and what people actually want out of a leader. And in a lot of ways, sport is sort of this embodiment of like what we traditionally think leadership should be. And I think that that's one of the main issues, right? It's this idea of being tough and firm and super assertive and the coach is the almighty power and no one else really has a say. And so going off of that, I think in order to create some change, it's not just about getting diversity and leadership. Diversity isn't necessarily mm-hmm. the answer, right? It's getting the right group of diverse people in those leadership roles. So you can still have women, you can still have white women, right, who align with some of those more traditional stereotypes of what a leader should be. And we're finding that the old school leadership styles are not, you know, what's successful and what will make, you know, an organization function properly or lead to more diversity within that organization. So in my mind, it's about getting, you know, the right people into these positions, not just assuming that going for diversity is the best way, but making sure those diverse individuals are brought up in a way to understand how leadership should function. And how important is that from a role modeling perspective of young people coming up in the space or young athletes wanting to become coaches like you did? Um, how important is it for them to see that diverse board, that um, person of color as a coach, that woman as a coach? How important is that role modeling aspect? Well, and to be honest, it's part of the reason why I didn't actually go into coaching. So even the women coaches that I had, uh, there are there were a few where I said that's not I don't I can't see myself functioning the way that they do in that position. I can't see myself aligning with that culture. And you know, I've done research on this before. A lot of women get out of coaching actually due to some of the ethical and moral compromises that they have to make just mm. to fit in and be successful. So it was actually because of that. So some of the role modeling is is absolutely critical because if that's what you're seeing and you don't somehow align with it, you may not obviously picture yourself taking on one of those positions, even though those are the people that we want to get into those roles, right? The ones that can create that change. So it's absolutely important. And even from, from the perspective of men versus women, yes, unfortunately the research does show that women athletes, they just don't think that women should be coaches. They assume that they'd prefer a man as a head coach. And a lot of times that's because they've never experienced a woman as a head coach before. From the visibility standpoint and the media is a huge piece of, of how we understand sport. And for many people, it's how they consume it as well. You know, 95% of uh, professional sport fans are not actually in the stadium itself or in the arena. They're watching from home. So how important is it like the media right now? And I'm, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's really disproportionately favoring men in the media, in all kinds of media. What is that? What does that scene look like? And where does it have to go in order to be, to show more women? I mean, we've looked, researchers have looked at this for decades now, right? And, and we hear similar percentages around the world, anywhere from four to 10% of media if coverage for women's sport. That's it, right? So, so if I can't turn on the television, which we still consume a lot of our sports on, and I can't see uh, someone who looks like me, or I can't see a woman's game, uh, then I, I don't think of it as a pathway, you know, in terms of a long-term career, right? So I, I don't see that. 
it's it's all facets of it. We don't see women sportcasters. We see the way that they do produce women's sport and the way they talk about the athletes being very different than the way they talk about male athletes. So there's very much a lot of layers to this that the media plays. I mean, look, the media has has controlled our what we look at for long time now, right? And it's not like they they tell us what to think, but they tell us what to think about, right? Hmm. So the way they highlight things brings those frames into our own thinking, right? So they don't tell me to think this or that, but they tell me that I should think this about women's athletes, or I should think that, you know, the default is male sports. And when we look right now, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, and we have newspapers and media outlets covering the potential return to sport of male uh, sports where we've had the NWSL women's teams playing for the last month almost, right? And very little coverage of it. And but as soon as we start hearing about the NBA and then here in Canada, the NHL coming back, it's like everyone's all over it. So we see it perpetuating itself even when we have this stoppage and a chance to show some live sport. We're not showing the women's game the same way. Yet the numbers when they have showed it have been tremendous. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's it right. seems that we, we haven't cracked this. CBC here in Canada has promised, promised to provide equal coverage to male uh, to men and women's sports on all their platforms. And we, how likely is that to happen? Well, we have to hold them accountable. It's our job now right. as researchers to go out and but here's the scorecard. CBC you said you're going to do this equally. And so far you're not. Um, and I don't really know how they're going to measure. It's the same as we're saying we're pursuing general ed- equity. What's the what's the measurement for that? Right. So do you mean it? I can go and count every second or every minute you have on and it's 50 percent for men's sport and 50 percent for women's sport. They are probably defining it a little differently would be my guess. Hmm. And and athletes and coaches get portrayed very differently in the media, too, when they are shown. Um, and I know Lindsay's had a few tweets about this. So I'm going to pitch this one to you, Lindsay. But why is it? Like, why do we portray women athletes and coaches so differently than men? And why do they sometimes not even have names? Mm. Just today, that was, or yesterday, we're recording on July 16th, right? There were stories of women athletes, they weren't even being named. And that's a problem. Like, if it were a male athlete, it would be their name front and center. And for women, we don't see that. Why, Why is that still happening? When we are seeing women, we're not actually seeing them. We're seeing a stereotype of them. Are you sure it's only a few tweets? There have been and, and several. <laughs> several. That was very kind of yeah. you. I wish it was only several, right, or, or a few. It's been that's pretty much all I tweet about. And I have like eleven thousand tweets now. So it is a problem. It's it's well, it's this idea of bringing almost a comfort level to women athletes, right? They're not supposed to be yeah. masculine. Women are not supposed to display masculine traits or characteristics or speak in a masculine way right and right we saw this happen with you know hope solo has other other things going on in the background but we saw this happen with hope solo you know as as a as a woman athlete i really looked up to her in the way that she played and she played more stereotypically what would be considered masculine right she was very vocal she was very she was not afraid she wasn't you know she didn't apologize for her behaviors on the field and the way she acted and that was her game. But again, she's a woman, so she shouldn't be behaving that way. Or we've been socialized to believe that she shouldn't be behaving that way. Uh, so, and, and yeah, I'm going off of what, what Anne is saying too. I mean, it's this idea of like this production reception relationship, right? I mean, the way that they're producing the women's games too, it's totally off. You know, they'll have, I don't know, I, I don't, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure they only have like two or three camera angles for the NCAA women's final four. The men, they have 
a rolling camera. They have a camera that like follows them on the, that's like attached to the roof of the arena. They have cameras that follow them on the backboard to record the dunks and the cool layups and the blocks with the women. It's like one camera. So that's not nearly as exciting as watching the men. So there's, there's definitely a bunch of different variables at play that, that really, I think intentionally suppresses the market for women's sport and, and they're continuing to do it. And I do think in some ways it is intentional. If they keep it that way, then there won't be a challenge to the men's product and people will continue to watch the men's games. And then the revenue in their mind won't have to be split, even though that's really not what's going on, right? There's a market for women's sport that would not interfere with men's sport, but they're afraid that it will. And this has been across history, right? This happened with the NCAA's takeover of the AIAW and athletic departments. They didn't want the women to have as much funding. So they came in and they took over the AIAW and now they control women's sport at the college level. So it's always been this fear. It's a fear-based mentality, in my opinion, that women's sports will somehow take over men's, but that's definitely not the case. There is a separate market for it. Are there bright spots? Um, are there, you know, folks or networks or organizations that are getting this thing right with women's sport, either from a media standpoint or from a leadership standpoint or from a hiring standpoint or from a, a funding st- Like, is anybody getting this right right now? Hmm. That's a great question. I, uh, I think we're about to see something that might get it right. Um, there's a new movement called um, Athletes Unlimited, and they're proposing a whole different model. Uh, and they're starting with women's softball in August. So it's potentially they might get it right um, where they're, they, you know, they're going to try to build it equal from the, the, the way up. And it's, it's mostly just for, for women athletes, but it's a different approach. So it's potential they're going to get it right. Um, I think many athletes are getting it right. I think many women athletes are leading this change. So, so besides the, the, the fight for pay equity by the women's national, the U.S. women's national team, their use of their media platforms through social media has revolutionized what a woman athlete can do to build a brand, to bring attention, to get sponsors. So they've essentially, I think, just leapfrogged the the federations and leagues and teams who can't figure out how to do it and they're doing it for themselves. And that I found powerful because I actually think it's upending the model of sport. Um, so I think that there are, there certainly are athletes that are doing it right. I think there are coaches that are doing it right. I think you can look at um, in basketball, you can look at uh, Don Staley, you can look at Muffin McGraw who just retired. I think they've done it right and they are setting the next generations up behind them really well. So I see that think the lag still for me is in organizations. I still think we're struggling in the organizational framework to not go to default, default in the models, default in our approach to putting on women's sports. So that's where I still see the barriers. And there are, you know, and there are men coaches that are doing it right as well, right? We would call them like allies who are, because the other thing we have to remember too about sport and specifically with coaching is it's a totally different hiring model. It's, it's, you can't compare it really to any other structure of hiring, at least in the United States you know, it's very much this like sponsorship model, like it's who you know, and you're going to be brought up by somebody. And so we do it. It's good. You know, we are seeing some men head coaches really bring on all women staff members and, and really making sure that they're hiring women assistant coaches for their teams, in the hopes that they will then promote them into a, into a position that's that's a head coaching role. Uh, but but I agree with Anne, I think that it's, it's really been the individual athletes and the teams that have sort of taken this on fortunately and unfortunately, right, it's added labor that they're having to take on since no one else is doing it for them and promoting them. But 
you know, the U.S. Women's National Team is a great example, and I always compare that to, and there are some great WNBA WNBA players doing it now, but they were never doing it at the rate that the U.S. Women's National Team was in terms of individually promoting themselves and building their own brands. So we're starting to see that now because the the U.S. Women's National Team model has obviously worked for a lot of those athletes. So that's going well, and I think social media is helping a lot, and it's helping you know, imagine when we were younger, if we had a way to connect with women athletes and coaches through social media and, and follow them on Instagram and Twitter, that would have been awesome for us, right? We didn't have that opportunity. So that is, that's going really, really well. I would say the Olympic Games, when we're able to have them, typically do a better job of, of promoting and, and showing, and could answer this better than me, but promoting and showing the women's events. Um, that's usually, it's usually a little bit more equal uh, for the Olympics, but so, so there are, there are some people doing things that are, that are moving in the right direction, but you know, I agree with Anne, it's the organizations that fully aren't getting this right. Well, and what's interesting to me hearing that is, is that really, it sounds like there's a few champions who are championing these problems um, and the solutions. And so, and I, that's very similar actually to what's happening for anyone who's listened to this podcast before in the environmental movement. Like you've got a couple of good people who get into the right spots and get into positions of power and have the capacity to sponsor other people into roles and to promote people into roles of leadership. Um, and that's when you kind of start to see that sea change culturally within the organization. So you touched on a couple of things that I want to, I want to crack. Uh, the first one is allyship because I think that it has been a buzzword for a very long time around several things, um, both, the I mean, not just both, but the gender gender equity with Black, Indigenous, and people of color, uh, with people of different abilities, with the queer community, and making sure that folks from different backgrounds have an opportunity at the table to sit at that table. So what does good allyship look like? Because I think that that's going to be part of getting those people into the right positions of power. Um, and then, I guess, building on that, what's the difference between allyship and sponsorship, or is there one? Well, sure, I think there's a difference. So I think good allyship to me when I think about it, particularly in the way I'll, I'll talk about gender first. Um, the first thing is that, you know, I think Lindsay said it earlier, like we, we have seen some women make it into the C-suite. Right. And and then it, it there are two different ways they approach that. One is like, hey, I'm in here and I'm going to stay and I'm not letting anyone else in. So they don't become the ally or they don't become the sponsor. There's few women who think of the other way, and this is the way I think of it, if it's really good. Hey, if I got there, my job is not to, like, you know, let help you up the ladder. My job is to throw down a net and get as many of you to come up to where I, where I am and so that you can actually go ahead of me. Like, that's that's really, to me, what allyship should be. Um, and, and, you know, and if you take it a step further to sponsor, so sponsorship means when I'm sitting in a room and that I'm the one that's saying this isn't here, you know, and particularly around gender, we are not dealing well with adding women of color. Like we think that getting a bunch of white women in is gender equity and it's not right. Because again, I've only got my lived experience as a white woman and that's not, that's, you know, I look at the sports I played, um, soccer, mostly white basketball, not so much. Um, but those, those athletes aren't getting that chance to move up those, you know, those athletes of color, we're not seeing them move at the same rates that we see the white women. So we still have a ways to go. And sponsorship means that if I'm in that, that table that I'm willing to say, I'll step away from my seat and let someone else sit here because their, their, um, you know, point of view is more important than mine at this time or, or, or permanently. 
and I think that that level we have to get to. I think there are some people who've done that well, but I think we first need to get over that first level of allyship where, you know, women get into a, spe- a leadership position and they just keep this narrow ladder or they kick the ladder down. It's one of the two. And we need to get women in there that throw like a really wide net down. And then that net has to be diverse. So that's how I see it. I like that analogy. Lindsay, anything to add? Yeah, I totally agree with what Anne is saying. And the other thing I'll add to that too, one thing that especially white women have done really poorly, I think, especially in sport in the past is the women who sometimes reach these roles are comfortable to the men who are already in some of those positions as well, right? So they take on this masculine, more masculine persona, not to say that that's incorrect necessarily, but they have transitioned themselves maybe more into into a masculine role to align with what will make other people comfortable with them being a leader. So I look at, I'm not trying to call people out, but if you just look at some of like the women athletic directors of division one programs, you know, they, they come across in a very masculine way. The men are comfortable with that. This isn't, this isn't necessarily a stereotypically feminine individual in that position. Right. So I think unfortunately some, especially white women, when we're talking about sponsorship and allyship is they look for people like them and they look for people like that to bring up because they understand that that's sort of how they got there. And they're trying to keep everybody comfortable. It's about not, you're rocking the ship, but you're not really rocking the ship, right? You're still fitting the status quo. Um, And that's in coaching as well. And that's a huge problem because again, when we're talking about this idea of, you know, coaches, you know, acting, you know, or behaving in ways that aren't appropriate or putting too much pressure on their athletes or, uh, you know, saying inappropriate things like those, those ways of coaching and those ways of holding leadership down in coaching is, is incorrect. And a lot of women are aligning with it. Women are being called out for it more than men. So this has been across the media as well. We're seeing more women head coaches being fired for those behaviors. Again, that's because they're women. We don't think they should stereotypically align with those masculine traits. But in a lot of ways, at at this point, my fear is that we're not bringing up the right types of people into these roles and the people who have cracked the ceiling and made it through the leadership labyrinth they simply align with what's comfortable in those leadership positions. So we're not shaking it up and we're not promoting sponsoring or, or providing allyship to those people who should be brought into these leadership positions. And so that's one of my big concerns, but I would also agree with what Anne was saying. And I think there are differences between the two and what our job is to figure out, okay, who are the right people? How do we train and facilitate the right people getting into those positions? And what do we need out of the leader in these roles to help shift? the culture. I think you touched on something really good. It's comfort, comfort, right? If we've learned anything in the last sort of two months, we need to get uncomfortable. All of us need to get uncomfortable because that's the only way we're going to get real change. And it's so easy to be comfortable with people who look like you, who think like you, who, you know, you think you're, you're just looking in the mirror. That's not change and that never will bring change. And if we can't get uncomfortable, then we're never going to get. And it's, you know what, Maddie, this to me works for the environment too. We have to get people to be uncomfortable with the status quo and the default and move to that next level. And until we can prompt mass uncomfortableness, if we want to use it that way, I think we're not going to see the level of change that we really need. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as, as you were explaining the differences between allyship and sponsorship, which I think is just fascinating, um, one of the things that was kind of crossing my mind is the people who tend to do well at promoting other women and people of color into positions of power, those same women actually tend to be better for the environment. They tend to take care of the communities they're working in better. They tend to take care of the diverse fans better. They tend to negotiate better contracts for their employees, which means that everybody has a better work environment 
the culture is better. Like these putting women into positions of power has been traditionally good for sustainability on so many levels. Well, and it's, I, I would love to also get to a place in, and this is across the board. It's not just sport. It happens to be heightened in sport. We, we need to start promoting empathy and emotional intelligence and, and not promoting this idea of, oh, a lack of empathy or a harshness or a lack of emotional intelligence resulting in maybe not being able to see one's, you know, position or, or understanding their emotions associated with an event is strength. That's not strength. You know, empathy is strength, right? Having, having sincere emotional intelligence, that's strength. And men have these qualities as well, just like some women don't have those qualities. And we need to get to a place, especially in sport and with the environment where we promote individuals that have those qualities and use them, right? And right now we're definitely not doing that across the board in sport. And I would say likely in the environment as well. Yeah. And I, I think that what's interesting, what's been interesting to me in this moment of pause is what organizations are doing with it. Like when you're not making tons of money right now and you are not worrying about performance on the field because there's no performance on the field to be concerned with, what comes up, right? And I think that there's been some interesting performative actions in terms of posting about Black Lives Matter, uh, posting about caring about the communities during COVID or whatnot, Um and then I think that there's a few organizations who are taking it to heart. And I wonder what the leadership rooms look like in those places because, and, and who's missing, as Anne said, right? Like, what are we missing in the rooms that are getting it right? And what are we missing in the rooms that are getting it wrong? And how do we learn from each other? Like, sport's really interesting in the sense that you can probably get some pretty good co-opetition going because a basketball team in one area is not, I mean, they're competing on the field with a basketball team in another area, but they're not probably competing financially with them. So there's room to collaborate on some of these solutions. And I'm, I'm curious to see if that starts happening. Yeah, well, stay tuned. We're, we're going to try to, to uh, show what need, what, what's in the room or, or where the teams are and, and how it affected what they posted around Black Lives Matter. So we're trying to quantify it. Um, and I think it would be the same if you took the same type of data that we did and looked at environmental statements and and things that they've done and, and, and taking a look, you know, again, at the racial diversity of the players, the management, the ownership. Um, you know, we're looking at data around uh, where where they give their um, donations to for political ways. What's the what's the politics of the state they're in and how does all of that play a role in what they posted? And I think you could do the exact same kind of model for mm-hmm. environmental statements. And, and, you know, taking into account, again, who needs to be in that room to get a statement that actually means something or you get a, a company that's committed to not just making a statement, but to sustainability programs that are making a difference. And it's the same thing around race and it's the same thing around gender. And so we need to be able to make people listen. We need to show quantifiably to me, you know, Lindsay and I have an experience with that with, where we quantified leadership and not making a difference by gender and got a lot of attention by it. So if we can quantify the impact, which we've seen in other areas sort of around the impact adversity, both racial and, and gender wise on for, firm performance. But if we can show it in sport the same way, I think then we're going to finally get some people because what is that? That's the bottom line, right. right? If you can show that that the bottom line is impacted by positively by having a diverse front office, diverse coaching staff, et cetera. Um, I think that's where you get to see some some organizations are willing to buy in. Because right now, until you do that, they're thinking the way they've been doing things is working for them. Right. Well, 
I'm, I'm excited to see that information and that data come to the fore. So I imagine that's a forthcoming study. Yeah. So it'll be interesting. And I actually think, you know, we can talk about it offline because I think you could do this, use the same sets of data and look at the environmental side of things in those teams and leagues. Same thing. Mm. Well, and then I'll add to that, too, in terms of who should be in the room, right, to, to make some of these decisions. In sport, across all organizations, honestly, you have such a unique opportunity to, to, to have different age groups by bringing in athletes, right? So having more athletes, not only that you'd have the athletes in the room with you to help make some of the decisions and organizational decisions and team decisions, but they're younger, typically, right, than the leaders. I think across the board, they're probably much younger. Uh, we see this in college sport too. So, and and Maddie, you and I have had conversations about this as well. You know, it's important to get the perspective of younger people, you know, and, and I think when it comes to environmental issues, they're more in tune to it as well in a lot of ways. Like they see what's happening way more, way more right? So so I think age plays a role in this too. And, and for sport organizations, it can be super easy. It's not even about going out and hiring people who are of a certain age group. You have athletes right there that you can bring into the conversation and bring into the boardrooms and you know, I talk to my students about this. They're shocked to learn that student athletes have like two seats on these boards in the NCAA. They can't believe that. They, 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 it's unimaginable to them that it's mostly, you know, university presidents or athletic directors. They think that student athletes should have much more of a say. And, and once we sort of get into those conversations, then they start to realize why things are the way that they are. So uh, I, I think age is another big piece in all of this. And, you know, even just from conversations with my students, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the future. You know, I think that that what are they calling it? The Zoomers now? Uh, I think the Zoomers have, you know, great ideas and, and insight and foresight. And I'm, I'm optimistic. The conversations we have in my classroom are phenomenal. So let's get them a seat at the table, right? Let's get those younger age groups in there to share their perspectives. And then in a, in a way, train them to be prepared to take on these leadership roles later on. If, if they're exposed to it early enough, then maybe they learn something and they're, they're ready to go. Well, and I think if you look at them as, as, as the next generation of sport fans too, they care more about values than they care potentially about winning and tradition, et cetera. You know, somebody recently interviewed me about the name changes of certain teams that need to happen. Um, and they were, you know, well, what about the season ticket holders? I'm said, like, what about the next generation of fans? If you don't change these names and you don't show that you're, you're, you're actually providing value, that you care about the values of your next generation, this is a generation that can get entertainment any way they can, they do not need to come to your games. They don't need to even consume them on TV, and they currently don't. So if you don't want the next generation, which you know many many existing sports don't, they're going to miss it because they just care about this sort of they think the rich, uber you know 55 plus white male sports fan, and it's like that's not that's not what's going to sustain you. And so if they don't if they don't think about the millennial, both from the employee but also the fan and consumer side of things, they're going to miss. And in a couple of years, we're going to see the sports that took it seriously are going to be thriving and the rest of them, we're going to see declines happening. Fascinating. Well, and I think that those declines have started happening in some places. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Look, yeah. Look at baseball. <laughs> yeah, well, baseball has a lot of issues, but yeah, that's definitely one of them. We're seeing it at the college. Yeah. We're seeing yeah. it at the college level too. I mean, you have a different, almost a different population of students going to even just state schools now because of how expensive it is, right? They're not going because they want to watch the Florida Gators play football on Saturdays. They're going because they got a free education to attend that school. So that's not translating then to, to fandom necessarily. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, these schools across the board, you're absolutely right, both of you. I think we need to figure it out and they need to think about the future and how to attract those fan bases. And 
bring them to the table, hear about what they want. And for what it's worth, the research actually shows that the organizations that do promote their values do actually get that millennial and Gen Z dollar. They get it. So it is an effective. Aren't we seeing a shift in NASCAR now too a little bit? (laughs) Shocking. Recent. Recent. (laughs) (laughs) The last two weeks about, right? A different type of, a different type of fan base. That was going around Twitter. How do I buy my tickets to the next NASCAR event, right? (laughs) People who have never even viewed it on TV or anything are now looking to attend just by some of the stances that NASCAR is taking. And they will probably increase their fandom. You're not going to lose people. It's similar to on the women's side. I, I, always question why ESPN isn't doing more to promote women's sport. You're not going to lose fans. You're going to just gain fans by doing that. It's just amazing to me that we always operate in this space of like a lack of resources and a fear of dispersing resources when all it's going to do is lead to more. Well, and what happens too is like your, your highly identified fans, they're going to be fans anyway. You've got them. They're there. They love the team. They're not going anywhere. And even if one or two of them may not, like or agree with the values that you're promoting now, they're not going anywhere. So we're looking at the ones on the bubble and the future potentials who aren't even aware of you yet. Right. And so there's only, you can only gain by promoting good values that align with what the world wants right now. So um, (laughs) on that note, I want to thank you both so much for, for coming on and, and having this conversation. I think it's important to connect these dots because I know, you know, Anne was saying that a lot of these research methods for understanding what works and what doesn't can be applied both in gender and in the same way in promoting environmental values. Lindsay, you were talking about covering what matters. And I think that that's another piece, the next generation. Like there's a lot of points where gender equity and environmentalism can be promoted together. And and I think that that's, I'm hoping that we're going to start seeing it. So thank you both. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. 